Hello and welcome to Rewildology, the podcast that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. In today's society, we're more separated from nature and our food than ever before. We move around constantly and never put down roots in one single location. Few of us have the time or make the time to learn about our local wildlife and plant species and how to identify them. We buy most, if not all, of our food from grocery stores, and if we're lucky, our community hosts a small farmer's market where we can buy fresh veggies from a local grower. We've become strangers in our own homes, far from our ancestors' way of life. Now, what if you had the opportunity to chat with someone that has a deep, personal connection with their land? Someone whose lineage can be tracked back for centuries. What would you ask them? How do they view the land and all the life it supports? And how can we also develop a deep connection with our home, food, wildlife, and one another? In this episode, we're sitting down with Rose Bear Don't Walk, ethnobotanist and PhD student at the University of Montana. Rose is a descendant of the Salish and Crow people and grew up on the Flathead Indian Reservation in Montana. Rose's mother ensured that she developed a strong bond with her home, heritage, and who she was as a Salish woman. When it came time to go to college, Rose chose Yale University to study political science. While there, she made the stark realization that her community lived in a food desert and was developing chronic diseases from eating food that wasn't natively theirs. And so, she made it her life's mission to learn her people's traditional foods and restore them in her community. Rose and I had such a fun conversation discussing so many topics like what her childhood was like, how she discovered ethnobotany, and why she, as a Salish woman, felt it was her calling to restore her people's traditional food, and how you, no matter where you're located in the world, can develop a stronger connection to your land. I hope you all are ready to feel super inspired and a whole lot more connected to our planet after listening to today's conversation. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe wherever you're listening to be alerted when the next episode drops next week. Also, there are several exciting updates and changes coming to the podcast soon, which I've alluded to in a couple previous episodes. Email subscribers will be the first to know, and if you'd like to stay up to date on all the podcast shenanigans, head on over to rewildology.com and sign up for fun emails from the show. All right, friends, here is my conversation with Rose Bear Don't Walk. Well, hi, Rose. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your unique story. And I cannot wait to just dive so deep into everything. But first, let's introduce you to everybody listening, the whole Rewildology audience and community. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like and how did you get to today? All right. So um, hi, everybody. Uh, (laughs) My name is Rose Bear Don't Walk. Um, I... Grew up uh, in the uh, in Montana. Uh, I grew up on the Flathead Indian Reservation there. Um, for those of you that are not familiar, um, reservations were established by treaties between the U.S. government and tribes 
um, sometimes of their own accord, sometimes kind of forced on them. But I belong to the Bitterroot Salish tribe, which makes up the confederation of the Salish and Kootenai people who reside on the Flathead Indian Reservation today. That also doesn't totally mean that, um, you know, that's where the people were forever. Uh, we actually lived in a, quite a few places across Northwest Montana. Um, but I guess for me, home is in the valley there on the Flathead uh, Reservation. And I come from this really tiny town, but I live underneath mountains um, and it's it's so beautiful out there. And just the landscape and being close to my culture and things like that um, really helped me grow up to be very sound in my identity. So. I'm Salish, uh, but I'm also Crow, which is another tribe uh, in eastern Montana. So I spent a lot of time kind of going back and forth from the northwestern side to the eastern side, spending time with my family, spending time with my grandparents. Um, I grew up in a single parent, single child household. So I have a very close bond with my mom. And she worked really, really, really hard in my upbringing to make sure that I had the tools that I needed to become a confident, young, Salish person. So what that means is I had access to culture. I had access to family. Um, I grew up going to different ceremonies um, throughout the year, um, powwows, gatherings, things like that. And I think as a result, being in that landscape, being in, in the territory of my people and surrounded by you know, all of the things that make us who we are, that helped me really shape myself as uh, a Salish person and a Salish woman, but also gave me the identity and the strong connections to be able to, you know, go away to um, a college institution and be away from my family and things like that. So I, I started there, um, but I, I would like to say that my lineage goes back way, way, way farther in those places and in those territories. Um, and that really helps me understand place and identity. Yeah. So thanks so much for sharing all of that. That's fantastic. And I would love to just learn a little bit more about your history, like your traditional mm -hmm. history. Could you teach us maybe a little bit more of like maybe some Salish or Crow traditions or whatever you would, you would love to share or some really big, maybe celebrations that you've had in your life. Like take us into your world, yeah. a world that yeah. a lot of people don't have the chance to see. So anything you would like to share, mm -hmm. I would love to hear. You know, it's really funny to think about the amount of people in Montana or even that are in states close to Montana that don't realize that we have seven tribes that reside in that entire state. And each of those tribes has their own culture, their own cosmology, their own um, traditional territories. And by virtue of being in those environments, we have formed such close relationships with the landscape, with the ecosystem, with the different animals and the plants and the beings there. And I'm sure we'll get more into my connection with uh, those things later. But uh, for the Salish people, you know, we're the most interior Salish band in the kind of Pacific Northwest Canada region. So there are Salish speaking bands of tribal people all across the Pacific Northwest into the coast, all the way up to Canada, 
And then we're just the band that decided that we wanted to be kind of more uh, inland. And so our traditions are a little bit different from what people see in coastal coastal environments, coastal Salish. They're, they're heavily based on like fish and kelp and um, seaweed and their diet is shaped by their environment. And so for us um, at, you know, Confederated Salish and Kootenai, um, we share the territory with the Kootenai and the Kalispell people. For the most part, we share some of the same ecosystems and diet bases or diet foundations. So we are really rooted in um, deer, elk, moose, bison, plant, different food plants, um, and then uh, a whole bunch of different types of fish and things like that. So even though our, our diet isn't totally based on like canoeing or fishing or anything like that, it still had grounds in our culture. It just wasn't a huge prominent part of it. So just being around all of those things and learning about them really gives you a good grasp of just how intimately Salish people knew that landscape. And so, you know, some of our um, some of our celebrations, some of our traditions and things like that really revolve on how can we have good reciprocal relationships with the other beings in this land. So a lot of, you know, our hunting is based in take only what you need, um, but also, you know, use part all parts of the animal. So you have a bison, you're going to use every single part of it and you know, it's really important to honor the bison because they are, they become tools, they become shelters, they become clothing, um, they become, you know, just meat for everybody. And every part of that bison was used. So nothing is wasted. Um, I think we live in a culture right now where, you know, it's pretty easy to be wasteful. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't finish something, you just throw it away. Uh, you have a bunch of wrappers. Everything is like individually packaged now. But I think for tribal people and indigenous people, every part of a living being or what used to be a living being has to be honored in a way that retains a reciprocity with that being. So that means not wasting any meat, not wasting any part of a buffalo or an elk or a moose. Um, there's a lot of just really cool and interesting tools or like um, different like orna- ornamental type things for like clothing that were used from different parts of animals. Uh, can you just imagine... I just think about this all the time. We're just having studied conservation for so long and how much mm-hmm. culture influences, well, everything. Mm-hmm. But just from like a consumptive standpoint, like just imagine if that thought process was culturally all over the world, how much mm-hmm. more beautiful our world, like the place we would be in if that yeah. was the case. Like how many issues we're having right now. Like if there's some way we can just take that viewpoint and just spread it everywhere. I think about mm-hmm. that. I think about that all the time, like other religions that are very, very close with wildlife and how mm-hmm. some of these areas across the world live with the most dangerous predators that there are. And yeah. yet they respect them because they're God. Like I think about yeah. that kind of stuff all the time. And just like you mm-hmm. said, like you, you honor mm-hmm. anything that you take that was a living thing. And I just think, mm-hmm. God, I think about that all the time. And so I think that's a really good segue. So you have this 
viewpoint of the world. So Mm -hmm. when it was time to go to college, then what did you decide to do? So uh, I always knew that I wanted to try and build a more universal understanding of the world. And that meant leaving the reservation and leaving kind of, you know, my comfort zone of being close to my family and being able to experience my culture and my language um, on an everyday basis and then go somewhere completely new, completely different. I'd never been there before. Um, So I, you know, I applied to several different colleges. I knew I wanted to try and get into some really good institutions, um, just given that like I was pretty active in my high school career. So I, um, I got my bachelor's of arts in political science from Yale University. And political science is like, it's just kind of like, it's a very open category of an area of study. So I focused in environmental policy, but really in deeper with all of that is um, I studied the ways that indigenous people have been removed or the barriers of access to healthy, nutritious foods. And that came from moving away. And then I took a couple like food and politics classes and things like that. And I realized that I grew up in a food desert. Hmm. Um, I grew up in an area that did not have as much access to healthy, nutritious, culturally relevant foods or places to access them or get them. So my town has uh, one grocery store and two bars and a gas station and people primarily get their food from these institutions, but the food that they get is, is just not, it's not very healthy. It's not very good for you. And the like nutritious food costs more. And so, so when I was like, oh my God, like I live in a food desert, like we, we don't, if, if we want to get organic food, we have to drive 45 minutes to the nearest city to get that. And there's not a lot of like farmer's markets and there's not a lot of places to access kind of the local growers in the area. And I saw that as a result of different communities living in food deserts, that their health outcomes had diminished And that is something that's very prevalent in indigenous communities across the country. Um, We have some of the poorest social determinants of health, and we have a lot of high rates of chronic illness, including diabetes, including obesity, including childhood obesity, um, hypertension, heart disease, all these things that are deeply connected to nutrition. And realizing that a lot of people in my community had these health issues, including people in my own family, made me realize that our current food system was damaging our community, which used to be some of the healthiest communities in the world, you know, prior to colonization. So I really wanted to understand and dig into that point where colonization and history created those barriers and influenced the way that indigenous people eat today. And as a result, those health outcomes that we see right now that are pretty poor. And so that's that's kind of the root of what I studied in college and also how it impacts 
kind of my work today. Um, so that was like, you know, that was the, like the big aha moment for like, oh my God, like, you know, our food is making us sick, but it's not traditionally our food. It's food that was imposed upon us by government, government actions and the westernization of our environment um, and foods that aren't made for us. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just seeing like the, the actual epidemic that's going on with food. It's really, really huge problem. So you're like, you have this major moment. You're like, oh my God, yeah. I know my calling. I have my why. We're mm-hmm. going to go down this path. So what did you do after this? So obviously you're not a, like a political scientist. This is not what yeah. you do. You're not doing policy. You're not in, you know, Washington DC right now. You're sitting with me in a very different place. So <laughs> what did you do after that? What, how, where did you take this inspiration next? Yeah. Um, I think <laughs> my, you know, my family, I, I grew up in a very strong family of lawyers. Um, my grandpa was one of the first American Indian lawyers in the country. Oh, that's cool. And he he worked for the Crow tribe and he worked tirelessly um, for his people. And I was very inspired by, by him and his constant want to make our communities a better place for our people. And my mom also, you know, knew from when she was like, tiny that she wanted to be a lawyer too. And so, you know, I kind of dabbled a little bit in that policy world and I was like, okay, political science, let's see how that goes. But then I just like, I knew that policy and, and law was not it for me. So I had to figure out where I was going to take this kind of why and be able to put my effort into something that was making a change in a way that I thought was important. So After I graduated, I went home. Um, I actually taught uh, Salish language at my old middle school and high school. And I think language is just the foundational building block for how I understand my current studies and my current work because our entire universe for indigenous people, for Salish people is rooted in the language that our ancestors spoke. And the world that they knew and understood and how they built upon that to basically like live on uh, until today. I mean, like it's it's incredible that our language has subsisted for so long, given just the amount of assimilation and westernization and the kind of stamping out of our culture. But seeing language and seeing it more intimately in the ways that I learned it and being able to teach it brought me into a space where I was like, okay, culture, like I, I really want to maintain this, this connection with culture. What is it about culture that influences food or vice versa? And I was like, okay, I'll I'll maybe like try to go do a master's program or something because I want to continue like this kind of environmental cultural like vein that I was in. And so I went to a program at the State University of New York, Syracuse, and it was a program specifically for indigenous graduate students, um, and it focused in biocultural restoration and traditional ecological knowledge. And I think for, you know, some of your um, listeners, traditional ecological knowledge is the knowledge base built by a society or a group that is rooted in the ecological understanding understanding of an environment. 
And it happens over hundreds of thousands of years. And so a lot of indigenous communities in the world have traditional ecological knowledge as a base of, or I guess as a, as a result of being in an environment for such a long period of time. And it's a term and it's a study that is widely becoming more accepted in science, which mm-hmm. is good because yes. <laughs> I think for a very long time, Western science has excluded or extracted from indigenous knowledge bases um, until it was proven to be credible. But I think now we're saying, oh, sh- like, shit, those indigenous people, like, knew what they were talking about. The like, whole time. <laughs> the like, whole time. Like, literally the whole time. <laughs> look at these methods. Look at these, like, the way these things grow. Look at these, like, different processing, like, processes. It's like, like, no shit. Yes. <laughs> it's basically, like, so, so traditional ecological knowledge is just so fundamentally important and should be a huge part of, you know, building Western science, building ecology and biology in today's modern day. And so that program was, you know, just rooted in how different indigenous students could come together and um, work on how we can restore our environments through an indigenous lens. And it was there, I was like, um, I was in upstate New York, and I took a class from uh, Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer, and she was going to be my advisor for the rest of this program. And she had a class called Plants and Culture, and it was basically just showcasing the various ways that plants have been utilized in cultures across the world for thousands of years, and how those relationships basically shaped entire societies. So it's like like plants are used for tools, they're used for medicine, they're used for food, they're used for ceremonial religious purposes. Um, their their uses usage is so widespread. Uh, and just listening to her talk about plants and their importance and how, specifically indigenous people have formed such intimate, loving, reciprocal relationships with them. It was just like, oh my God, this, <laughs> like, <laughs> this, this, this is, this is it. This is like what I want to do because I think there's, there's a lot of hunting and fishing still happening in my community, uh, which is great. And I, you know, I totally support all of that work. But I think largely our plants and our plant medicine and our food plants is not as widely practiced. And it's something that's kind of, you know, slipping through the cracks. And I was like, okay, like, yes, I want to understand the relationship that Salish people have formed with food plants and how food plants can serve as a connector to health and wellness and culture and all of these things. And I also just, I think it's really cool that plants live in one spot their entire lives and they make their own food and they uh, adapt to have, you know, other beings help them out in whatever they need to do. They evolve, they have these beautiful blossoms that have very different purposes. And I just like, 
they're so much cooler than I could ever be <laughs> in my life. So I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I will say that too. Yeah. Especially as I've, I've traveled more and more since I've um, been like a mammal, big, big cat specialist mm-hmm. for a long time. I will totally be the first to say that I didn't give a shit about plants, but the more I learn about them, I'm just like, wow, I was so ignorant. I would just, I just didn't know. They just live on a very different time scale than we do. And I think that's yeah. why I just never really gave them the time of day, even though I played in my woods like every single day as a child. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so (laughs) I've had this moment. I don't think I've had the same level of realization as you, which we'll get more and more into. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so just to put a term out there. So we said before that this is ethnobotany. So this is like, I'm assuming then you consider yourself an ethnobotanist. So to you then, what exactly is your study then? You've you've gotten into mm-hmm. it. So how have you started to do this work in your ethnobotany in your Salish community? Like, how have you started to pull that data? And because just like you said, a lot of it sounds like it might have been lost or could be getting lost right now. So how mm-hmm. have you started to like pull this back and discover what plants mean to your band and your tribe? So I think like just going back to those times where I was growing up and my mom was bringing me to all these different events and making sure I, you know, knew how to cook for people and knew how to like be a good young Salish woman. You know, I didn't realize how critically important that was until I was older because a lot of the events we went to were feasts, Mm -hmm. um, specifically like honoring feasts um, for the bitterroot, which is a really important staple food of the Salish. Um, We did camas bakes growing up. Um, which is another important staple food and process uh, that we do in the summer. And, you know, just all of these different things coming together and coming together in my mind, in my heart, and all of those things built me the foundation to be like, okay, I have a little bit of knowledge. Let's take that one step further. And in my studies and in my research, for ethnobotany specifically, I learned that a lot of our traditional plant knowledge is carried by women. And so I, as a result of my mom's, you know, love and her wish for me to grow up is I was surrounded by a lot of powerful Salish women. And they taught me things that as a kid, I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. Like, I'm going to, you know, keep doing my thing. And then as an adult, I was like, oh, my gosh, this, like, this plant was used for this. And this is, like, things that I grew up knowing and experiencing but didn't realize was so important until later on. And I think as a result, uh, I, I understand that my role as, as a Salish woman is to carry that knowledge on and also absorb as, as much as I can from the people that are still around today. And so taking all of that and putting it into my study of ethnobotany um, had kind of like a two-pronged approach. One approach was, you know, this is gathering information from my community for my community because largely in academia, historically, and even in our tribe, and I'm sure a lot of indigenous nations experience the same thing, is that 
we had a lot of non-Native people coming in asking for different insights and information on plants or animals or the landscape or anything like that. And then they would just leave. They would Mm. do their scientific inquiry and then they would peace out, never to return to the community again, never to return any sort of profit or recognition or anything back to these people that you know, gave them really important insight to specific knowledge bases. And I knew that if I was going to do master's research, I had to do it in the correct way. And that meant giving credit where credit is due, but also making sure that the resources that I have and I create are by Salish people for Salish people. And that meant you know, going into my community, talking to people, talking to people about their relationships with plants. What kind of food plants do you remember like growing up with? What's your favorite food plant? How do you know how to process things? What are your memories associated with these plants? And what you find there is just an incredible knowledge base that is so rooted in family and community and love and land And it's all connected. Like I found a lot of plants are connected to the earth and the earth is connected to everything else, but also the water and the sun and the rain all have a role to play in how plants grow, how, you know, the birds migrate, how fish swim And I found that Salish people have a really intimate, deep knowledge of all of those occurrences. So everything is connected in in our culture. And so food plants, food, nutrition, health, all of those things were connected in my research and in my understanding as a Salish person carrying out this work. And... um, You know, I think making something and building with my community was super important. And it will always be important to me as I continue this work. Because the work is never done. Plants still come back every year. Like, like we're, we're, you know, super thankful that they're here and they're coming back. But, like, the work never ends because our people never stopped practicing and having connections with the land. Some of it is waning. Some of it is maybe lost. I mean, Mm. there's a huge branch of traditional medicine that I don't think a lot of people are practicing these days. But that takes a huge amount of just knowledge and practice and knowing because plant medicines and practicing them on, on people has a huge risk. Right. It's, a, it, it's a it's a really big liability. We were just talking about mushrooms. <laughs> like we were just, we we were just, just talking, just about, talking mushrooms. about mushrooms. Yes. mushrooms. <laughs> How scary they are. <laughs> right. So there there are these pockets of knowledge that I I'm not sure if we can revive or I'm not sure if I'm the person to do that revival. Maybe that's work for somebody else. But I do know that my work with food plants and their connection with our overall health and well-being is something that is really coming back in the community. And I will, you know, 
put all my efforts forth to help with that growth and to help with whoever wants to learn. I mean, my overall goal and intention is that 50 years down the line, Salish people are still identifying, eating, processing, sharing our traditional foods in our communities. And what is the application of this? Like, how are you approaching your community to get these next steps action? Like, how have you been able to get the ball rolling? You like did all this research. You're like, oh my gosh, we need to be restoring these traditional plants because this is what it gave to us. How are you doing that? <laughs> I guess is the, the big question. How, how are these coming back? So I think the, the research that the foundation, I have this paper. It's a really, really long paper. It's just it's like 270 pages or something like that. Yeah. That's crazy. That's a book. <laughs> it's a book. It's pretty long. And like, I don't know. I feel like a lot of people aren't going to like read through an entire thing unless they're doing it academically. So right. <laughs> even though it, it is, is there as a resource, I wanted to make sure that I, I was putting something together that could be accessible to people in a way that was easier for them. So my most recent endeavor is I started a um, online resource called the Salish Plant Society. And the Salish Plant Society is basically a forum, a, a resource base, a website that shows all of the important components of food plants to the Salish people. So it has like a little bit of history. It has different like how we forage and how we forage in an ethical and reciprocal way, um, but also, you know, different plants, how to identify them, how to use them, what's their Salish name, what's their cultural use, um, how do we know them, What what is the, like, are they for food, are they for medicine, are they for tea, are they for, like, um, biomarkers, just a way for me to bring science the, the botany to the culture, to the Salish way of knowing. Um, and so, you know, that website is up and running, but I have like a, an online like newsletter that I send out from an email account. And then I have um, social media for the Salish Plant Society where I just put together like little videos of just different plants that I see out in the field and um, what you can use them for, how to identify them, things like that. Mostly because I think that there's a way that we can use Western science and traditional ecological knowledge to build up the community rather than use it to extract or use it in a way that's demeaning to one study or the other. I think that botany and food plants can come together in a way that will help the Salish community flourish and help that body of knowledge flourish so that we can continue that knowledge base for the next generations. I mean, because like way back when we were identifying and knowing plants based on their uses, based on how they looked, based on what animals ate them, things like that. Uh, I think now, since we have so much accessible to us, just making sure that people feel confident in the field is really important. So giving them the botanical tools to be like, okay, I know that like a glacier lily has a bulb and it's got two 
sometimes maybe more uh, long linear leaves that come from the base um, and, you know, the whole plant is edible, I think that helps build people's confidence so that they can share that with somebody else or they're going on a hike and they can be like, oh, I'm hungry. Like, here's here are these plants that I can eat. Um, and, you know, here's how I honor them and share my love and respect for them as a Salish person. That's ah, it's so beautiful. Just to think about going on a hike and being able to eat things and not be scared is really valuable for <laughs> sure. So what are then, uh, so it sounds like a lot of this foundation then was your master's work, but you're actually working on your PhD. Like you're taking this to the next level. So what's, mm-hmm. what's next for you in this greater why that you have? What are you doing next to continue this on? So the next level is um, I'm doing a PhD program and it's in indigenous and rural health. It's at Montana State University. University. It's the first program of its kind to be focused in indigenous and rural health, which I think is great because largely, again, because our communities have such poor social determinants of health, there's a myriad of other factors that go into why that is. It's housing crises. It's, um, you know, mental health, behavioral health. It's where we live. It's like how far we are away from healthy, nutritious foods. It's our disconnect from our culture. It's a whole bunch of different things that come together. And I think the next step with this program is to really focus on how I can bring ethnobotany to build community health. What does that look like? How can I use traditional ecological knowledge and make it accessible to Salish people so that they can feel healthy and well for the next generations? And this program is very unique because they allow for indigenous students to really build out their own projects. Um, there's like a dissertation route, which I'm not going to go on because I already wrote <laughs> a hundred plus page paper. <laughs> yes, you don't need to do that again. <laughs> I don't need to do that again. Um, I have it all already. Um, or there's a, a grant writing route. So it teaches students how to write grants, how to um, create projects, how to make implementable things available so that they can have measurable, actionable change. And that's where I'm going. So I want to create projects focused in ethnobotany and traditional food plants and see what the community is asking for in terms of what are their barriers to that knowledge? What are their barriers to accessing that food? How can we create projects and outcomes to mitigate those barriers and in turn affect our own health and wellness? Mm. Oh my gosh, that's going to be absolutely incredible. Do you see this being applicable 
outside. So I'm, 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 I'm a very big picture person. I always think very big picture. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing like this work, like getting like a foundation, almost like a footprint and then being able to then move on, like as you go beyond your PhD and maybe even start a nonprofit or a business or something like taking this and then going to different tribes and like Mm -hmm. helping them restore their uh, traditional ecological knowledge too? Or um, are you just really going to stay focused on your community or what, where where do you see this going for you? I see, I think personally... I would like to start and maintain within the Salish community because there's a lot of projects um, and there's a lot of things that aren't really, they're implemented, but they aren't really sustainable. Mm -hmm. So how can we make our seasonality of our plants be something that we can be a part of every single year for 50 years? How do we maintain that as Salish people. And so I think like, you know, creating a project and seeing where that goes and maybe doing something with that project every single year or, um, you know, building on it so that people can continue to have that access. And, you know, I still don't really know what it all looks like if it's either bringing those plants to the people or taking the people to the plants, um, having, I don't know, pamphlets or uh, like books or anything like that. Um, it's really all dependent on, you know, what, what the people say, what, what the people want. But I think that there are a lot of communities that are starting to work on revival for their ethnobotany or have already done it already and have, um, you know, robust food systems that are kind of coming back and being, being put in place. And I think, my role specifically is to work for my community and then also help other people in Montana or in the greater landscape of, I don't know, North America, just understand and see that plants and our connection to them is not just something that indigenous people can have. Um, I think largely what I've learned in doing workshops and speaking events and talking to different people is that, you know, a lot of Americans, a lot of people that live in this country don't really have a strong connection to their landscape or, you know, what foods they're eating or their backyard. And so how can we create meaningful relationships with our landscape in the ways that Indigenous people have and have done for thousands of thousands of years so that we all can also have loving reciprocal gracious relationships in our ecosystems because ultimately i think in the big picture of conservation and preservation and climate change people aren't going to get on board unless there's something that they love at stake So how can we help people create those relationships so they have stake in their environment? And I think throughout this entire journey is the relationship that I have formed with my landscape and with the plants of my people that year after year return to us and offer their their bounty, their their beauty, um, you know, just being able to experience that and 
have that be a part of my life makes me have stake in the environment and our territory and our, our land as Salish people. We have to protect it or else those plants could disappear. We have to harvest in an ethical way or else those plants will turn away from us. How can we love plants or love the beings in our environment so that we, if something were to come in and destroy or damage, realize it's a part of who we are. And I think plants are such a huge part of what it means to be Salish and what it means to have connection with my land and my ancestors that if a development project comes in, like we, like we can't have that. that. I mean, if, if we had a development project coming in on a camas field, why would we give up that valuable piece of land that sustained and provided food for our people for thousands of years so that somebody can have a property or, I don't know, some <laughs> sort of corporation or anything right. like that? Um, so I think, you know, in addition to working with the Salish community on building resources or building capacity or starting programs that help people have more access to traditional food plants. Additionally, I think that my gift for speaking and sharing this perspective can help other people realize that they also can have relationships with their environment. Oh, yes. You gave me the perfect softball to lob up what my next question was going to be. You couldn't have like done that better because that's what I really wanted to talk about next is how can we be more connected to our land? Because when we chatted last, you, you, the way you talked about your home moved me so much and just made me wish that I had had that connection with where I grew up and like mm -hmm. the acres of land that I grew up on. And yes, I loved and respected them, but I didn't know them as intimately as you. And mm -hmm. because of that, and I'm one of the few that actually got to grow up in a rural area that had land that could actually touch soil and play in it and just be out in nature. Mm -hmm. So how do we live more connected to our land? And this could be anybody anywhere. This is quite mm -hmm. an international audience too. And so how can any of us that aren't you know, indigenous or mm -hmm. more of like a traditional background, how can we live more connected with our land and respect our land so that we can get through this crisis that we're in and just love what we have? Yeah, I think, I think for people that live in landscapes that were largely populated by indigenous people and still are largely populated by indigenous people, you know, could stand to learn a little bit more um, from the people that lived in that landscape themselves. So there's a lot of um, different initiatives popping up in the state of Montana where, you know, native gardens are popping up and they're showcasing, you know, here, here are the different traditional uses by indigenous people of these different plants. Um, but also if you see this plant you know, in the wild, if you're hiking or something, don't step on it. Like, you know, you can try it out for yourself, but maybe try these different foraging techniques to make sure that that plant returns the next year. I think also everybody could stand 
to learn about a relationship with a plant by just growing something. Mm-hmm. Like I know like, you know, during COVID, the, the, the plant craze just went crazy. Like everybody <laughs> and their mom has like five plants. But <laughs> <laughs> like, died like three out. months later because they didn't know what they were doing. But yeah. You learn a lot by taking something from a seed and trying to help it survive um, to the next stages. And I, you know, I'm an ethnobotanist. I am actually not great at uh, growing things from seed. <laughs> and so I'm learning a lot about my relationship with herbs and things like that. But I just think that if if we just get curious about our landscape, you know, because people will see the bitterroot in Montana, for example, and it's our state flower. It's a beautiful flower. Um, I actually didn't even know what its blossom looked like until I was a lot older because Salish people harvest the bitterroot when it's in its green succulent stage. That's when the roots are, um, you know, super full of water, super full of nutrients, because all of those are not going up into all of that energy is not going to go make a flower or like blooming or blossoming or anything like that. So we dig the bitterroot um, before it's blossom and when it's blossom in the summer, you can't eat it. Um, it's like woody and hardy and not very good for you. But a lot of people see bitterroot in Montana and they're like, oh, it's a beautiful flower, like all this stuff, but I'll, like don't even know that it's edible or don't mm. even, mm-hmm. you know, know it's multiple uses that kept a population alive for centuries. Or, you know, there's a beautiful story about how the Salish people receive the gift of the bitterroot. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of different nuances in un, like exploring and understanding our plant relationships. I mean, herbs, saffron, like saffron is a very specific like uh, reproductive part of a flower that only blossoms for a certain period of time a year. How many people know that? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Just like (laughs) all of these things about being curious about your landscape. Um, I think there's a lot of apps out there nowadays Mm -hmm. that help you identify plants, um, tell you a lot more about maybe what the plant is used for or, um, you know, different aspects of it. I think there's a lot that we can get involved in in understanding the landscape, the plant landscape around us. you know, in our backyard, we just found that we have black cherries hanging oh, out. Oh, nice. And so, <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, oh, my gosh, that's great. Like, I'm going to go pick some tomorrow. But I think the baseline for that is greeting plants, animals, birds, beings as relatives. Like, a lot of our traditions and culture and ceremony is rooted in the idea that Humans are not above anybody else. In our creation story, we were actually last to show up on the planet. Mm. Um, Our creator made the plants and the animals and the water and the wind and the sun before anything else because they had to make the earth a place for the humans. And so they got rid of, um, you know, all of the the really bad things that could hurt human beings like jealousy and hatred um, and all of the things that kind of ail us today. But the animals and the plants were in charge of making sure that our earth was habitable for us so that we could continue as a society. And as a result of that, 
like all of our culture is rooted in this idea that the plants and animals like came before us and they, they made this place for us and they're a part of who we are as people. So for us to demean or damage or destroy them goes against the fundamental way that we were created. And so applying that in modern day is really just about how can I utilize all pieces of this plant, all pieces of this thing I got from the grocery store? How can I live in the environment that I live in and have a lesser impact on it so that it and I can continue to coexist? You know, like there's a huge, uh, what is there? There's a huge like, um, uh, like campaign for uh to get rid of lawns and like start like yes, actually I've seen that. Like, <laughs> yeah. what's native to where you live like yes. actually grow plants that they're not grass <laughs> yeah I, I mean like it's things like that it's like how can we create ecosystems in our backyard that are based in the history of the entire landscape you know bringing in pollinators bringing in birds bringing in all of these different things that maybe weren't there but could be reestablished because that's what they knew that I mean that's like a part of who they are and how they continue on so um you know I think I'm rambling a little bit but I think everybody everybody can have a relationship with the landscape if they have enough curiosity and they have enough just like gumption to to reach out and to try and have a loving relationship with it. Not all people want to do that, but I think as a result of having a deeper relationship with my people, with my culture, with my landscape, I fundamentally am a better, healthier, just overall, like my soul is just brimming with love for these ecosystems. And so I think a lot of people could very much um, benefit from having that. So maybe that's going to a, you know, a, a botanical garden. Maybe that's growing food. Maybe that's going hiking and learning about the ecosystem or attending a talk by an indigenous person who knows about the land a lot more intimately. Um, maybe it's just saying hi to a sparrow or, you know, greeting the, the blooms, um, in the summer, just as they're, you know, your family, your relatives. God, that just sounds absolutely beautiful. And just, just as you briefly mentioned too, like, just think if there was a wave through our culture that would view the world more like that, the possibilities for all like the mental health problems, like our mm -hmm. skyrocketing suicide, all of these really bad problems that if we were just all more connected, felt more love, then maybe we wouldn't be so just separated, like in our own little silos and alone, like people, we did not evolve to be so away from each other mm -hmm. like we are mm -hmm. meant to be close just like you yeah. said and like we are just as much as part of the earth as anything else and mm -hmm. um 
sometimes it takes like some big movement for these things to really get going. But just thinking about that, like if you just, just say hi to your sparrow in the morning and just think Mm -hmm. how happy you would feel for the rest of the day. And like, what kind of like momentum can come from that? Yeah. Yeah. It's little acts, I think, that build up to having a better, stronger, loving relationship. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Could not agree more. Having just explored this myself, you know, just going out in nature, going on hikes, just those little things. It it really is amazing how it can just bring you into a whole different space. But before we switch topics completely, Mm -hmm. since you are this fucking badass woman that's like going down this path and just like starting this whole thing, since you have a whole audience right now, Mm-hmm. Is there anything in particular that you can think of that you've like n- needed help on that some, somebody might be really good at X, Y, or Z, and they would love mm-hmm. to partner with you for something in particular that you're working on, like on a project wise, is there mm-hmm. anything, when I say that, does anything come to mind that might be able to help in anything? Gosh, I mean, I, I would just love to have some basic understanding of implementing models or grant writing. Um, How can we make science education accessible to people? Like, I I don't know. I don't want to build something up from scratch, even though I know there's not a lot of like models or anything out there that have um, deep indigenous perspective. But I'm also wondering like, how the heck does somebody build a plant curriculum? How the heck does somebody, um, you know, create plant resources or plant books or things like that, that are easy for other people to understand? So, you know, I like, I don't, I don't really know how to make a plant book. I've read a lot of plant books and I'm like, oh, this is kind of cool. I wonder how they organized it, all that stuff. But, you know, additionally, later down the line, there are some things that I would like to write or publish or, you know, get more people connected into the fabric of learning from indigenous people. Um, There's just a lot of things, you know, out there. And I don't know if anybody could help with that, but (laughs) there might be somebody, you mean, now that I know exactly what you need, that's honestly, that what you said right there is one of the big reasons why Rebotology exists. Cause I want this network to become Mm -hmm. so big and robust and connected that we are all like one, maybe two connections away mm-hmm. from anyone that we need to really make the next phase of our why happen. So yeah, anyone listening, you know what Rose needs. So <laughs> if you or someone you know might have some answers, just like let, let Rose know, let me know. I can definitely get everyone in touch. So mm-hmm. that is awesome. And it, I also have it in the back of my mom too. So okay. there's already been a few things I've sent your way. I'm just like, girl, look at this. <laughs> Check this out. This might be really good. But yes. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's switch gears a little bit because there was a recent headline that I do not want to miss the opportunity to talk about. And that mm-hmm. was that the National Bison Range was restored to the Salish people. And uh, could you just like tell me more about this? Like what happened, how it happened, what that means? I mean, just everything. I know this is a complete 180, but it's like really cool and really important. So yeah, just teach us about what happened. (laughs) Well, if you you think it's a 180, it's like, it's actually, it's all connected, you know, again, like I'm going to keep saying that, like it's all connected because the bison are just such a fundamental food source 
for indigenous groups, for the Salish people specifically. But, um, you know, a long, long time ago, the Salish partic they were a buffalo society or a bison society. So there was all of these different tribes, um, you know, across North America that really depended on the bison for their livelihood, depended on them for food and for shelter and for um, clothing and all these different means. And so because the Salish were a traditional bison society, after kind of some of the um, the U.S. <laughs> governmental initiatives that sought to wipe out the bison in, yeah. in various areas, um, there were some Salish people that kind of wanted to bring that back into the fabric of our society. And they started a bison herd. They like started with like two bison and they wanted to create a bison herd that could help our people later on. And after they created, or not after they created the bison, but after, you know, they started this initiative, the bison herd got taken over by the federal government. And mm. so this area, this large, large land base that Salish, Kootenai, um, Kalispe people used to use for bison hunts, it was sectioned off and then it was uh overtaken by the federal government and used like kind of as a a federal park or park reserve or something like that so kind of how like um our national parks are and things like that and as a result you know they still had a bison herd they still got like many many bison to come from these two um and they had you know a very touristy approach to it. I mean, it's kind of like Yellowstone where people go in to go see the bison and go see this beautiful landscape and things like that. But it was totally run by the federal government. And it was on the tribal reservation. So it was on traditional and current Salish territory, but they couldn't claim it or they couldn't have any say in how it was run because it was federal. So when um, Deb Hallen got elected, um, she made it a priority to return different parcels of land back to indigenous peoples. And indigenous peoples that had, you know, had prior used it or had stake or claim or over it or anything like that. So this bison herd that was started by two Salish members, um, now just a beautiful, beautiful, amazing herd was returned to the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes. So this was a huge um, act of, you know, what we're seeing, uh, as the kids say, land back. It's a huge return of land back. Um, and we actually get to run the National Bison Way Range in a way that's culturally inclusive and comes from the viewpoint of the Salish people. So the bison herd is still there. The, 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 the tourist component is still there as well, but you have a sovereign entity, the tribe, being able to run this incredible like mammal restoration project. And it like I don't know what the plans are for the future of the bison range. If we're gonna like start, you know, maybe 
having the bison be back as as our as our food component because most of the people actually have to go hunt bison in Yellowstone if they want bison meat. I don't know if that's something we're going to do with the herd here, but when tourists and people that aren't from the area come to our reservation, they can go see a herd that was started by Salish people, run by Salish people in a landscape that is wholly Salish. Oh, that's me chills. It's <laughs> <laughs> so beautiful. Oh my god! And they like the whole like gift. They have a gift shop now. They have like a whole like like a learning component, which I think is great. It teaches you about like the different Salish words and the history of the different animals in there. Because it's not just bison, and there's like antelope and bears and a whole bunch of different like traditional plants and flowers and all this stuff. So it's just a huge, huge restoration of tribal sovereignty but also a restoration of land and control over how this land is carried out. Oh my gosh, I have to come visit. I didn't I didn't know that it was still available for like other people to go visit too, like the tourist tourism component because you know that that's yeah. what I'm so such a big advocate for is for responsible tourism and so to know yeah. that we can go and support mm-hmm. your mm-hmm. community. Oh my god. I need to go, like, tomorrow. Too bad I'm flying to Ohio tomorrow because I would just, like, let's go to Montana. <laughs> it's 20 minutes from where I live. 20 minutes. Yeah. 20 minutes? Yeah, you drive to my hometown and you can see the, the bison ranges on the left side of the highway. So sometimes you can see a little bison up there. No freaking way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. Well, next time you are back in your hometown, I might just have to just... I'm just on the <laughs> I'll make that drive without a question. Oh, that is so cool. I just, okay, so I'm a biologist and sometimes mm-hmm. I can't get, turn off my biologist brain. Mm-hmm. Do you think that wolves will be restored too? Or do you not have any clue or idea? Or is that just too far down? Or I don't know. I have no clue. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, it probably could be something that I could look into more because I mean, our, um, tribal wilderness office, our tribal, like, um, fish and game, fish and wildlife, like our programs are incredible. Like mm-hmm. we have some of the best programs in the country for how we maintain our, our wilderness areas and, um, our mammals and our landscape and things like that. So I would probably just look there because I think the, Wolves were a pretty important critical part of our um, entire landscape, you know, historically and things like that. But uh, me personally, I do not know the future for wolves. Mm, well, keep me posted because <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm my wheels are already turning due. Like just like also like tourism opportunities and just bringing more wealth to the area and supporting this amazing, beautiful thing that you already have going. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, you said you already have bears, you already have so many pieces back in place. So it sounds like just that one last little thing or wolves. Mm-hmm. So, but they're really good at finding their own way. Wolves are absolutely incredible at dispersing. So they might come back naturally. I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, please keep me posted on that. Like I said, my biology yeah. things are like my <laughs> biologist tingling. I'm like, Ooh, yeah. The last piece is wolves. Are they coming? So you have them in Montana. So mm-hmm. just curious if they'll make the way to the bison range. Cause that would, that would be just like ultimate, just holy shit. Like, yeah. Be so cool. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That would be so cool. So, okay. 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 Thanks. Thanks so much for telling me more about that. But 
Let's shift gears a little bit to you now. So one question mm -hmm. I love to ask everybody coming on is we've all gone through some hell. We've all had difficult things that we've gone through. So some struggles in our journeys that we've had to overcome. Mm -hmm. Do you have a particular story or um, event or something that you've gone through that you've overcome or you're currently going through that you would be comfortable sharing with us? Yeah, I think... Largely in the world of academia, and I saw this a lot at Yale, um, just because the institution is predominantly white, predominantly, um, you know, more affluent than a lot of people realize, or maybe they don't, is that my place, I've often had to feel like I didn't belong in some of these spaces because I was a brown person because I was a woman. And, you know, I really wanted to make my voice heard in these institutions, in these places. And so, you know, I fought a lot. I fought really hard for social justice and equality at Yale. And it was just like, a it, it was a lot of activism. It was a lot of like uh, tired nights and a lot of just like being angry all the time mm. about, the institutions and why they were in place and, you know, why our people are the way they are and, you know, how, just how disparate some things can seem. But on the flip side of that is the beauty of what it means to be a part of this community. Like, being Native is so incredible. It's, it's, beautiful and I wouldn't trade it for anything else even though it is hard to be an indigenous person living in America in a place that was largely created in spite of you at the decimation of you whose institutions largely don't include you including the history that people are taught about you I still I wouldn't trade my heritage and my indigeneity for any of those hardships that I experienced. I have a big name. My last name is Bairdle Walk. <laughs> and like, I can trace that name back, you know, generations. I can trace my family back generations and generations and where they come from in the land. And sometimes, you know, people think my name is fake. People think like, I'm not a real person. Do they person. really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, people have actually asked me, oh, your mom named you that? Why? And it's <laughs> just how those... much they little they know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The the <laughs> amount of sheer ignorance that still exists today about indigenous people is incredible. And I still would not give up my my heritage for any of that. And having experienced almost all of it, um, you know, growing up, going to a primarily white institution, trying to be a person in academia, I realized that, you know, this, this is where I'm meant to be. I am, I belong here. I belong in Western science. I belong in academia. 
because my people did not subsist and live off this land and develop these deep knowledge bases for it to just die out. Our people did not resist and live and sacrifice so much so that we could just let it all go. And the hardships of macroaggressions, microaggressions, just flat out racism that we are still experiencing today just makes our roots to our ancestors stronger and our will to carry on in spite of everything, in spite of intentionally being wiped out by this country. I, like, I can't let that go. I can't, I can't do it. I'm, I'm going to make sure that these institutions and these places and our history is still existing, that Native people will still go to Yale and they will still feel like they could have a place there or that their perspectives are important and valued and necessary in these disciplines, and especially science, especially, especially science. I think that the world of science has a lot to learn from Native peoples, not just in America, but across the world. And I think that our, you know, our background is being the first scientist. So why, why would I shy away from that? Why would that make me not be strong and firm in who I am. And so our science predates every, like like Western science creation, you know? So um, I think that's really what what drives me. Mm-hmm. despite all of the all of the things, all of the little things that you know, I have to brush off my shoulder, but just making sure that Salish people are known, Salish people have a value perspective and we will continue on. And if anybody's going to do that, it's you. I love your passion. That's why I was so excited. So everybody, <laughs> uh, so Rose Rose and I met through Charles, who's been on the podcast, because you two mm-hmm. were really close friends in Montana. They, they did yes. jujitsu together. If anybody's a freaking <laughs> badass, it's Rose. Like, that is, it's like, yeah, my favorite jujitsu partner is Rose. You got to meet her. She's like, like, Charles, yes, I would love to meet Rose. So yes, <laughs> yes, you are a, a huge inspiration to all of us. And that's why I'm so grateful that you could come on and share all of this Mm -hmm. with us and you've you've said so many beautiful things and I I always love to ask this one last question and it is and you you have already said something similar but if there's anything else what advice do you have for anyone listening or like what's a last message that if we don't take away anything we could take Mm -hmm. away this one thing what would that be that Indigenous people don't have a monopoly on plants and that everybody can have and cultivate a loving relationship with the plants of their area. But when that relationship comes at the expense of the plants or Indigenous people in an extractive way, it takes away from that relationship and that intention. 
So basically is you can go out in your landscape and you can have a, a, a fundamentally loving, reciprocal, gracious relationship with plants as indigenous peoples have had for thousands of years. But once you start commodifying and once you start treating a plant as a commodity or something to capitalize on or anything like that, that is when the plants will turn away from mm. you, from us. So don't go buy sage from Urban Outfitters because it was probably not picked by an indigenous person or it was picked in a way that probably damaged or destroyed the plant. And also you're paying $25 for it, which is like just gross to me. Um, <laughs> like, like trying to find ways to have that relationship with that plant in a more intimate and loving way, whether that's, you know, getting your sage from an indigenous person who actually goes out and knows how to, you know, forage these in good and ethical ways, or maybe like finding a way to pick it to yourself or anything like that. I think just in the, in the world of ecosystem management and the environment is that once we come to the point of extraction and commodification and capitalism, things start to go downhill. Yes, absolutely. It was yeah. so good. It was so good. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks for sharing that. So how can anyone listening, I know I already threw a call out earlier for mm -hmm. maybe some people that maybe they want to connect with you. They're like, oh my gosh, Rose, I have this idea I would love to share. How can someone listening follow you and your work online, and websites, all the things? Just, of course, I will have mm -hmm. all of this in the show notes, but if someone's yeah. listening right now, I could just bleh, word vomit on us. <laughs> okay. So um, my, my regular social media which is kind of just about me, but I also talk about a lot of these um, environmental issues is at Rose Don't Walk. Um, I have a Twitter and an Instagram. But then I also have an Instagram for the Salish Plant Society, which you should definitely check out. In addition to the SalishPlantSociety.com, where I have a lot of the information um, and all of the kind of how to create relationships on a website forum. Uh, and if you have a specific question yourself, you can uh, email me at rose at salishplantsociety.com. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rose, for spending your day with me and sharing your wonderful knowledge and your passion and your why with all of us in the rewildology community and also teach us how we can be connected with our world. So again, mm -hmm. thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>